I'm overzealous When I'm down, I get real down When I'm high, I don't come down I get angry, baby, believe me I can love you just like that And I can leave you just as fast But you don't judge me Cause if you did, baby, I'd judge you too No, you don't judge me Cause if you did, baby, I'd judge you too Cause I got issues Today I bring you part one in a series of four weekly interviews about rethinking mental health. As we face rising rates of people suffering from feelings of anxiety, depression, inability to focus, mood swings, many are rushing to their doctors to help alleviate their pain and discomfort. But before you meet with the doctor, you might want to listen to the words of this doctor, Dr. Chuck Ruby, who's joining us today. He's the author of the new book, Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled About Mental Illness, An Insider's Warning to Consumers, cautioning that if one is not careful, they may walk into a system that might end up doing more harm than good if they don't know what they're looking at. And here to help guide us through how to get the proper help is Dr. Chuck Ruby. Dr. Chuck Ruby is a licensed psychologist in private practice in Southern Maryland. He's the executive director of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, a nonprofit research and public education organization that rejects the traditional medical notion of, quote, mental illness, unquote, and calls for humane ways of helping people who suffer from significant life distress. And he's here to talk to us about his new book. Welcome, Dr. Ruby. It's such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you, MK. It's great being with you today and talking about this important issue. In your book, part of what you do is actually sort of take us through your process as a professional who went through school, who uh, received all the proper training to receive the doctorate that you have, and then to enter into the real world and begin to see what you were actually looking at in real life. There's always what the theory and then there's the practice. And really an entirely different story began to unfold. And, uh, and, and you sort of walk us through that process. Can you share some of what that process was? As you take us through your process, you take us through our own as well in rethinking how we look at this issue. Yeah, I, I came into the clinical psychology field relatively late in life after my first career in the military. Actually, it was during the, toward the end of my first career, I was selected to, to uh, compete for a, an advanced education program through the Air Force Institute of Technology. And luckily, I was, I was selected and sent off to Florida State University for uh, three years and then a, a year-long internship at Malcolm Grove Medical Center at Andrews Air Force Base outside D.C., um, but I, I don't know if that being my second career had anything to do with my contrary views on this. I do know that I never really, once I got out of doctoral training, uh, I immediately started to see problems with what I had been taught. Uh, and I never really bought into it fully. But then especially when I started seeing people in psychotherapy and connecting with real lives and the problems they were having. I remember actually thinking, uh, wondering why people 
are afraid of people who have been diagnosed with mental illness because they're not afraid of people who have been diagnosed with cancer or other kinds of things. And I thought that was really a, you know, a discriminatory kind of a thing. Through this journey from, uh, you know, my exposure to the mental health industry and all the questions I had, especially once I got into private practice and working with people who had problems, I just didn't see any evidence for uh, illness and would then question and ask of my mentors and so forth uh, the best I could. You know, it's always dangerous to do this, to to challenge your mentors. In, In formal training programs, you can't be too oppositional against the uh, the you know the teachers and the mentors in that program the authorities in that program you can't be too too uh, you can't ask too many questions or you're considered oppositional and, and a troublemaker i never received any kind of answers to the question why are we considering these problems these people are having as illnesses the questions i asked about that were either ignored uh, or discouraged And so I started looking myself. It was only after that, once I got out of any kind of supervised role as a clinical psychologist, that I was able to be more free about my criticisms. Luckily, I'm not, I'm in private practice, so I'm not in an agency where I'm beholden to follow the company line. So I'm able to be as outspoken as I am for that reason. And then I reflect back on my own difficulties in life, everything from being a child. Uh, luckily, I was never really exposed to the, the uh, psychiatric industry. Ex- briefly, I was later in my life, but I mean, as a child. And I wonder what would have happened to me if my idiosyncrasies were thought to be mental illness, whether ADHD or autism or oppositional defiant disorder or other kinds of things and how that would have negatively affected me growing up. Uh, It wasn't until later after I was retired from the military and transitioning into a civilian world that I experienced quite a bit of uh, anxiety and concern about that transition. It's quite different being outside of the military and being in it and asked for help, got a prescription for Paxil, took it dutifully, but after a couple of weeks, decided to quit taking it because it made me feel incredibly bad, um, very, very apathetic and uh, not concerned about my transition anymore. So in, in essence, it worked. I mean, there's another problem with language. Things like that are said to they, they work and they, it did work. But the way it worked was to make me apathetic and not complain anymore about my problems I was facing. Um, and so that was just another piece in the step toward my full rejection of the medical model and, and the, the ideas that I express in the book. You really take a look at the question of what is mental illness? How do we define it? How do we even get to this idea of mental illness? You talk about the discovery of Thomas Saz's book, The Myth of Mental Illness. Can you talk about that? Yes, interestingly, that I was never exposed to that until I was out of my graduate training. And I don't really know how I got exposed to it, but I did. And um, it just opened up all these questions for me. And and Thomas Saz wrote this book in the late 50s, early 60s. 
and he had very important questions, the same questions I was asking. It was kind of nice to see that somebody else had asked these before, but the problem is no one had answered the questions. They just uh, marginalized and, and ostracized him professionally as well because the questions he was asking were just too threatening to the status quo. Uh, I later had the opportunity to meet Peter Bregan, who was, is another figure in critical psychiatry and psychology. He was actually one of Saza's protégés. And then a, a few others, uh, other of Saza's protégés, I had the opportunity to, to uh, um, communicate with them and talk about these things, eventually discovering ISA. And um, the rest is history, they say. And can you also talk a bit about the training that people receive? Because that was, I think, one of the most surprising parts of your book, is when you talk about the research that's done at universities. And so while people are busy getting educated, thinking that they're learning about uh, mental health, they're actually, unfortunately, becoming more misinformed. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it was a great program. My program at Florida State University was was fantastic. I had the opportunity to study with some uh, very critical thinkers in the field. And to be honest with you, I don't think it was ever said or taught that mental illness wasn't true, was a true illness. And here's why it was never addressed. It was just assumed. And so I assumed that also because the leaders in the field said it's true, said are calling these things illnesses. So they must be, let's just call them illness because I bought it hook, line and sinker without even realizing that's what I was doing. Uh, the unfortunate part is that's false. There are three different areas of research that are typically used to support the notion that, for instance, depression is just like any other disease, like diabetes and cancer. Those are the chemical balance theory, brain scan research, and genetic research. All three of those are flawed. In fact, the first one, it's incredible to those of us who critique psychology and psychiatry, the first one, the chemical imbalance theory, has been openly admitted for the last decade or more by the leaders of the orthodox industry as being false. Nonetheless, even given that, every day we see on TV or we people hear about from their psychiatrists that the prescription they're going to be given corrects the chemical imbalance. If, if I go into more detail on in, of this in my book, of the different kinds of people, the different authorities who have openly admitted this is a false theory, and yet it's still being peddled at the same time. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth. But what I can say is there has never, ever been any kind of evidence presented that there is an imbalance of brain chemistry that is a pathological marker that is causing these things we call mental illness. The other area, brain scan research, it clearly does show that brains of people who have been labeled with mental illnesses look different than the brains of people who haven't been so labeled. But step back and think about this. Our brains function and they change depending on what we are doing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. So if I'm walking, my brain is going to look different than if I'm sitting still. If I'm crying, my brain is going to look different than if I'm not or if I'm laughing. And you would then expect that somebody who's living a chronic life of passivity that we see in people who are labeled with depression, their brains are going to look different over time, especially since it's a chronic pattern of living. 
than someone who isn't living that kind of pattern. But that brain chemistry difference between those groups of people has nothing to do with pathology or disease or illness. It just demonstrates that our brains function depending on what we're doing at that time. They differ depending on what we're doing. There's research, clear research, that shows that people who, for instance, read Braille, their brains look different than people who don't. Even political persuasions are reflected in brain functioning. There's research showing that conservative thinking people look different. Their brains look different than liberal thinking people. But we wouldn't conclude from that brain difference that those things are pathological or illnesses or diseases or in any way some kind of malfunction or defect in the brain. But that's exactly what's happening with this brain scan research showing differences among people who have been labeled with these different problems, that the problems we call mental illness are illnesses, are diseases, are pathology, are malfunctioning brains or defective brains. It just basically shows differences among people and their brain functions. So it's showing activity in the brain? Yes, activity and, and, and structural change, too, over time but um, mostly activity, yes. Couldn't one argue that one has certain tendencies to be maybe depressed? Even if it is just activity in the brain, couldn't one still have an ongoing activity that looks like depression and then would therefore then be depression? Yeah, by definition it would be depression, but depression, the definition of depression is not an illness. We all have different interests and, and likes and dislikes and, and Use, if you want to use the word tendencies, in a lot of different areas, and those tendencies would be reflected. Theoretically, we would expect those tendencies to be reflected in brain activity. But then again, it doesn't make it a disease. It just means that we differ. Individuals differ on a normal distribution, on a lot of characteristics. And that difference is not the same as illness or disease. But in what ways aren't they exactly like diabetes? Yeah, since there's no chemical imbalance, there's no biological defect, there's no biomedical marker or laboratory test that tests for these things called mental illness, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia. There's nothing biological going on in a malfunctioning way in the body. That's why there's... Our attempt to help those people uh, doesn't depend on the diagnosis because the diagnosis isn't describing the bodily malfunction, it's describing the problem. On the other hand, with real medical illnesses like diabetes, there is a test that you can do, a blood test, to determine levels of blood glucose in someone. And when it's past a certain number, that's evidence that the person has diabetes and the treatment depends on that test. So my, the example in the book I give is um, if someone complained of being thirsty uh, and frequent urination, it is important for the doctor to do a proper test to determine what's causing those symptoms in real illness. Because if those symptoms are caused by kidney failure, it would make the treatment different than if those symptoms were caused by diabetes. The doctor just can't listen to the problem, in other words, the symptoms, and then decide what the treatment is going to be because it could be fatal if they do one treatment versus another. 
within our field, since there's nothing in the body that's haywire, what we do doesn't affect that. The diagnosis itself has no effect on what we do to help the person. That was what I was trying to distinguish. It was based on this idea that that in so-called mental illnesses, there is nothing to test for. All of our psychological tests that we have, or instruments, which is what they're formally called, don't test for things like a blood test tests for things. All they are, all the psychological tests are, are one of three things. They're either one's self-report on a rating scale or another's self-report on a rating scale about a variety of things, or they're measures of, of performance on, say, cognitive tasks, or they're speculations based on someone's response to ambiguous situations like the Rorschach inkblot test. Those are the only three things those psychological tests do. None of them identify or verify some kind of malfunction going on with the person that can be then targeted with treatment, like does happen in real medicine. The genetic research is similarly flawed, and it's probably harder to understand because of the, the specifics of the research, but there's a thing called the equal environment assumption that is used within genetic research studies would basically say is that uh, twins in a family are reared the same as non-twins in a family, or identical twins are reared the same as fraternal twins. That's an assumption being made in the research. And by the way, twin study is the main way that people use to research so-called mental illness uh, genetically. But the problem is, is Identical twins aren't reared the same as fraternal twins or non-twin siblings. Their similarities make it that people treat them differently. And so it's, it's harder to tease apart the genetic versus the environmental impact of things on the development of problems that later get diagnosed as mental illnesses. And again, I go into far more detail in the book about the critique of those areas, but none of those three areas, chemical imbalances, brain scan research, or genetic research supports the notion that uh, that um, the things, the problems we call mental illness, are illnesses, are diseases, are pathology, are malfunctioning brains or defective brains. So one could actually argue that in some ways, mal- it's malpractice to prescribe a drug for no illness that exists. You could argue that yes. The irony or the absurdity is that in some instances. I've heard it called malpractice when the psychiatrist refuses to prescribe a drug for that illness that doesn't exist. Several cases of that, because this, the so-called standard of care and standard of practice, standard of practice is to prescribe psychiatric drugs for psychiatric problems. Mental illness and the other phrase mental health are, are examples of medical language applied to non-medical things. In science, those who propose something have the obligation to provide the evidence of that. The mental health authorities propose that these things called depression and anxiety and so forth are real illnesses, just like diabetes and cancer. However, there is no evidence that they are about some kind of defect in a person or with a person. In fact, what they are are moral judgments about the person's feelings, thinking, and behaviors. They're they're related to problem behaviors, perhaps problems in thinking, um, 
difficulties that people endure and they may want help with. But the problem itself isn't a medical issue. It's not an illness. It's not about health. But the entire industry is replete with these words. It's hard, not just the industry, as you pointed out, the lay public, um, especially now with the Internet and our ability to research just about anything we want. There is um, there's a lot of misleading information, all types of medical sounding words that are used within our industry. And the fact that those words are used makes it sound better. One of the issues that you take on throughout the book, actually, is the use of language. Right. I decided to use the term in capital letters, the industry, because I was somewhat trying to be a little bit humorous, uh, using it the same way that George Orwell used the ministry, the concept of the ministry in 1984's novel, that there are... In the novel, there are ministries that are very powerful, but they are paradoxical. So um, their their intended purpose isn't really their true purpose. Their true purpose is the opposite of what their name sounds like. So anyways, I, I thought I would say the industry, just so I didn't have to keep saying the mental health industry or psychiatry, social work, psychology, counseling. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, say it that way. So the industry is how I define the overall system, the orthodox system, as being uh, steeped in language and these linguistic tricks to try to give a certain impression that isn't really true. So obviously we see the term patient being used and diagnosis and prognosis and, and treatment and medication all the diagnostic category names, they all are medical terms. And if you keep using those terms, it implies medicine and illness when there is no such thing. So if I say, and in the book, I think I give the example of a phrase, if someone said that the treatment was effective in reducing the symptoms of depression, that sounds like a medical statement referring to an illness being treated medically and the symptoms going away, et cetera, et cetera. But when it, what it's all, the only thing it's saying is that in, in our attempt to help someone deal with life stress, they came to feel better. If you say it that way, which is more simplistic and humane terms, and, discuss, and you're saying the same thing that the medical phrase said, but it's not implying the same thing. And that's used over and over throughout not only the profession, but also in popular media about these things that we deal with. And we'll bring you part two of this conversation next week. But you don't judge me Cause if you did, baby, I'd judge you too No, you don't judge me Cause if you did, baby, I'd judge you too Cause I got issues You get mad and you break things Feel bad, try to fix things But you're perfect Poorly wired circuit And got hands like an ocean Push you out, pull you back in 
you don't judge me Cause if you don't 